Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 171. With Robin Hills, the director of EI for Change, a company specializing in educational training, coaching, and personal development focused around emotional intelligence, positive psychology, and neuroscience. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of our listeners have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies that we can all use to improve our own productivity in our schools, our sports, and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom, a student, or in the corporate environment. The idea is to take the fear out of neuroscience and show everyone how simple it can be. This week's guest, Robin Hills, who I found out is well-connected with some of our past guests, Dan Hill from episode 163, who taught us how to read the emotions in others, and the author of The Leading Brain, Frederike Fabricius, all the way back from episode 27. Now, Robin Hills is joining us all the way from England this week. He's taught over 250,000 people in 185 countries how to build resilience, increase their self-awareness and understanding of others. After my interview with Dr. Perry this week, I've been thinking about the upside down triangle or Dr. Perry's sequence of engagement where he mentioned that all information comes in through the brainstem and we've been programmed to react to what we take in with our five senses instead of taking a few minutes to pause and respond. I'm hoping that our conversation with Robin will give us some practical ideas that we can all take away to make ourselves better teachers, leaders, and parents looking at emotional intelligence through his lens and make us better supervisors or leaders in the workplace, parents, teachers, and coaches. If you want to learn more about Robin's programs, you can see his books, courses, and audio programs through his website that cover the most comprehensive and detailed education of any emotional intelligence organization and are today used in educational establishments in different parts of the world. Let's meet Robin Hills and see if we can sharpen our saw around our emotional intelligence skills together. Welcome Robin Hills. Thank you so much for joining me today all the way from England, where I was born. I was in, in born in Worthing, Sussex. Welcome so much, Robin. Oh, lovely to be on here, Andrea. I was born not far away from Worthing, a few years earlier than you were. I was born in Eastbourne on the Sussex coast. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Now, it's it's been a while since I came, I went back to visit home, but um, I actually watched a podcast that you did, and I was trying to think up some questions for you for this today. And uh, as I was watching your podcast, I saw the countryside behind you, just like what you've got behind you now, a beautiful scene. And it made me think of a story 
And I haven't thought about this story since I was in eighth grade when I went on this exchange trip with my school. Can I maybe share that story to open up because it's oh, relevant? Do. Yes. Okay, perfect. So, so this goes back to when I was in eighth grade, there was this exchange program at our school where I would go and stay at someone's house for three weeks and go to school with them and see what school was like in the UK. And then they would come to Toronto and stay at my house. And I came in late to the program. So I got partnered up with this boy. His name was James and we were very different. We didn't have similar personality types and we just had a really difficult time relating to each other. I ended up going from this big city in Toronto to this small town in Bristol. It was called Halitrow. And his house was this cottage type place and they made it up beautifully for me. I had this upstairs loft and I was so comfortable that, that the home was beautiful. I just remember struggling that I couldn't connect with my partner. I spent a lot of times going off doing what I enjoy, going running in the, the fields behind the house. There was this forest and I would run till sundown just really to avoid having to connect with someone that I really had a hard time connecting with. And uh, I just didn't have the social skills back then. You know, we weren't taught in school how to connect. You, you stuck with the people that were similar to you. Can you share what drew you to work in this field? And what would you have suggested for me and James to get to know each other better than just not connecting? Oh, well, look, first, first of all, let's look at the situation that you found yourself in with James. And I'm sure all of us have very, very similar stories in our histories and background where we just did not and could not connect with somebody. Uh, let's go back to 15, 16 year olds. They do not have the social skills and the emotional intelligence to connect with anybody and everybody. They're struggling. They're struggling with growing up. They're struggling with their mental capabilities. They're struggling with their hormones. And there's a whole load of factors going on. And James was probably as intimidated as you were in terms of that relationship. Here comes a fit young Canadian girl into his life and he's supposed to develop a relationship with her. Um, that would be a godsend to most 15, 16 year old boys. Um, and I'm speaking from experience here, which is years ago, but, uh, Look at poor old James. There he is thrown together with this young girl and he's got to create a relationship with him. He would desperately, desperately love to do so. But um, circumstances turn out that he can't. And he's probably as intimidated as you were in terms of having the conversations that needed to be had. And he's probably living a life of regret that he didn't do more. So between the two of you, what happened happened. You've learned from it. He's learned from it. Your lives have gone in different directions and your lives are special because of that rather than despite it. Very true. Very true. And then what drew you to do work in this area? Because I know that I thought of all the experiences that that I had and missed because I lacked something when I was growing up. I lacked courage, confidence a lot of these skills that we teach to young people. Um, when I started to see how important they were, I thought, you know, I've got to put together something, a curriculum. That's really how I began here. 
what drew you to do this work in this field? Well, it was a very interesting field that opened up in the mid 90s when Daniel Goldman published his books on the topic. And I got to know about his book soon after publication. And I thought, you know, this is the missing link that I have been looking for to explain how and why um, I can't influence, can communicate and persuade certain people and certain people just do not want to even bother trying with me. Uh, now, they are very, very intellectual people and they work in highly specialised fields. I was working in the field of medicine, selling medicines to clinicians and surgeons in the London teaching hospitals. And some would welcome me with open arms and we'd have good adult mature conversations and some just didn't want to know they had a, a a prejudice an ingrained prejudice against the industry and they assumed that everybody who worked in the industry had horns growing out of their head and were just by their very nature evil people so with that kind of environment and that kind of uh, situation the relationship is not going to develop now what can i do well if they don't want to communicate there's no point in communicating with them uh, but was it the role was it the job was it the environment that they found themselves in no it was down to that particular individual and the way in which they were engaging with the world it was how they were using their emotions how they were using their thinking but i didn't know that at the time so once I realized that emotional intelligence was the core that underpinned everything in terms of human relationships, I just wanted to learn more. And on the basis of that, I set up my company, EI for Change, about 15 years ago, and it's just gone from strength to strength to strength. Oh, I love hearing that and, and hearing where you started, especially because I also went into sales and got to a chance to work with some people that the relationships were great and easy and others it was very difficult and strained and so these skills are so important for success in life and in the workplace and especially after we leave school and i know that learning these skills is ongoing and we must practice them can you share how you would first of all pinpoint an area of improvement for someone so what types of assessments do you use and then how would you create an action plan for someone that you're working to help? Yeah, most certainly, Andrea. But before I do that, let, let me ask, answer a question that is often posed to me. Am I emotionally intelligent? Well, if, the, if I answer yes, it's rather arrogant and self-conceited and suggests there's no room for improvement. And if I answer no, what am I doing in the field of emotional intelligence? So the answer really is it depends. I mean, there are certain situations that I'll go into and I'll deal with it well and I'll come out of it and I'll feel good about myself and feel good about the way in which I've helped and supported other people. And uh, there are going to be certain situations where I come out of it and I don't feel good about myself. I feel decidedly unpleasant because I've completely screwed up. I'm human. So I'm continually learning. So the answer really is it's work in progress. And I'm still looking at opportunities to grow and develop my social skills, my capabilities, my self-awareness, and all the fundamental parts of emotional intelligence. And 
I can only get better. But, um, you know, just recognize that at times it's just not going to work. I say the wrong thing or I don't say the right thing in the right way. Uh, I'm not emotionally engaging with somebody. My emotions might not be driving me to uh, develop the relationship in the way it could be developed. I could be tired. I could be hungry. I could be ill. So there's a whole host of factors that need to be taken into consideration. Now, to go back to your question with regards to how do I help people assess their emotional intelligence, there are a plethora of great psychometrics available on the market, scientifically relevant, validated, reliable psychometrics that can be used to help people to understand themselves better and to look at their strengths and their limitations. I use Myers-Briggs type indicator, uh, step one and step two. Uh, it's a coaching assessment. So the way in which to work with it is not to say, well, this is what you're like, this is your personality type, but help the other person to explore their preferences and determine for themselves what type they are. Now, it might be completely different from what I think, but it's not my personality and it's not my type. It's up to them to explore it and take it away. I use DISC, which looks at dominance, influence, steadiness and compliance. And that looks at behavior in the workplace. And again, this highlights certain factors for people about what they're doing well and where some of the liabilities could be. And then I use the EQI 2.0, the Emotional Intelligence Inventory 2.0. And this looks at a number of different facets and factors, but all of them are used really to help people to understand themselves, to look at their strengths and how they can apply those more effectively. I'm not interested in weaknesses, I'm not interested in liabilities. Um, let's not work with something that is bad and make it not bad. Let's look at something that is good and make it brilliant. And if we can do that, interestingly enough, all the weaknesses and liabilities kind of fall away. Interesting. And something that always came to my mind with these strengths tests, because I've, I've done them all, all the ones that you've mentioned, and my strengths seem to have changed over the years. So what might have been a strength for me 10 years ago is definitely not what's a strength now. So are there strengths that, that show up out of the blue that might come because now we're doing podcasting that wasn't around a few years ago? Or, you know, I used to be strong in a certain area, but now I'm doing this video production and that's a strength. So do strengths change these these strengths that you focus on, or are they always there somewhere? Well, I, th I think I think to a certain extent they're they're there, they're latent, and what happens is the environment allows for these strengths to come out and flourish. Uh, for my own part, I've always I've always been fairly creative, but not in the kind of artistic sense in terms of watercolor or clay modeling or anything like that. But uh, I've always enjoyed kind of creating things and podcasting and video editing and sound engineering are all these kind of skills that I've had to learn over the last few years. Now, uh, let's go back to when I graduated. 
back at the turn of last century or a few years before the turn of last century. I graduated with a degree in biology. Now, that did not set me up to work on the internet. In fact, it was, it was 10 years before the first email was sent and certainly 15 years before uh, the internet uh, was invented. So if anybody had said to me at the time, oh, you'll be working in video editing and you're working in, um, uh, in sound engineering and you'll be uh, communicating with people all over the world on a day-to-day -day basis by the 2020s, I'd have been looking at them and said, oh, come on, don't be so silly. So, um, I, you know, the environment has changed and what I... Uh, my hopes and aspirations as a 20, 21, 22 year old um, have been realized, but they've had to adapt around the environment. And uh, certainly the skills that were available to me to develop then just didn't exist now. So what are the future? What's going to happen in say 20, 30 years time? We don't know but we've got to keep an open mind and we've got to look at adapting and creating around that to just survive, thrive and enjoy. Definitely. So, so let's just say you were to do an assessment uh, for someone. You do an assessment, you get this packet, right? I remember I got my packet. You, you read through it. You're like, oh, I like this bit. I don't like this bit. Ignore that bit. And then it goes on a shelf. I probably got all my assessments somewhere back there in my closet. Then nothing's done with it. So how do you ensure that someone actually does something with what you learn from the assessment? Well, it, the important thing is to encourage them to get the value from the assessment that they need to get so that they can then put together an action plan. Um, and a lot of it is down to uh, pure coaching, uh, the purest form of coaching, because it is not my personality. It is not my behavior. I'm not engaging and in, uh, interacting in their environment. So what's working well for them? How can we get more of that? What do you want to change? And why do you want to change it? What is it? Uh, what is happening for you that makes you want to affect these changes? How can we affect these changes positively for you? How are you going to measure that? And how are you going to follow it up? Now, in certain circumstances, I have an agreement with people. I will follow up in uh, six weeks time, 12 weeks time, uh, 18 weeks time, whatever it is. And then we can work through a period of change. What's worked well? What hasn't worked? Why didn't it work in the way in which you expected to? Uh, what came out of it that you weren't expecting that was better? And uh, by so doing, it helps them to focus. And I say to them, look, if you don't do your homework, you're not letting me down. The only person you're letting down is yourself. And the other thing that I've done, Andrea, which is which is quite, quite different from a lot of uh, what everybody else does with psychometrics. I say to people, right, now we've got this information about you. It is valid. It is reliable. And it gives us a pen portrait of you. Let's get it on your, well, you call it a resume where you are. Let's get it on your CV, your curriculum vitae. And let's infuse that document 
with these great talents that you've got. Let's use the language so that when you're asked to interview, what are your strengths? You can look somebody in the eye and, and you can say to them, I'm good at planning. I'm good at making logical decisions. I'm decisive. I'm bold. And they say, well, where does that come from? You can say, well, it's come from all the assessments that I've taken over the years, rather than sticking them in the back of the cupboard like I've done and done nothing with it. <laughs> Right. No, I like that. I like making learning useful and practical. And and as you were talking about people wanting to change things, sometimes we know what needs to be changed, but it's really difficult to actually do that change unless, you know, you, you've got somebody holding you accountable to making that change. How do you how do you deal with that? Because you would come in and work with someone. Maybe they would see, oh, I've got to change this. And then do they actually do it? Um, maybe if you call them up and you have a conversation with them, but do you, do you see people that want to make change and how would they, how would they do make that change? Oh, all, all, all the time. I, I mean, um, making that change is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Um, it's, it's honestly, it's a case of creating new neural pathways and we know how difficult that can be. And putting into practice something that is hard becomes easier over a period of time with lots and lots of practice. And we now know from uh, the research that's been done that it is this creation of these new neural pathways. It's like opening up a, a road that's been blocked and the more traffic that goes down the road, the easier it is for the traffic to flow. So um, I, it's a case of helping people to say, right, what is it that you want to do? How are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? What support can I give you? Right, off you go, go and do it, because I'm not going to do it for you. Right. Robin, I was looking at one of your books, and it was on resilience. And I've always wondered why some people appear to remain calm in the face of a disaster or some sort of difficult situation, while someone else just has a hard time coping with it. And I, I took this from your book on resilience in the workplace, and you said that people that are able to handle themselves well and remain calm in a crisis have what psychologists call resilience, an ability to cope with problems and setbacks. And I know there's so much behind this question I'm going to ask you because we all have different life experiences that shape us. But what makes someone more resilient to setbacks than another person? And how could we strengthen resilience in ourselves? Well, firstly, I think the most important thing is to define this word resilience because it's banded about so much. I mean, you've only got to listen to the UK media and every news bulletin has somebody who's resilient because they come through adverse situations. And we're all supposedly quite resilient. Now we've been through the pandemic. No, we're, no, we're not. You know, we've actually lived and survived through it. God forbid. I mean, there are lots of people that haven't. Are they not resilient? Well, no. I, you know, that's the wrong use of the word. And it just seems to be a little bit of 
nice easy media speak and it's a bit of a sound bite so let's go back to resilience resilience also is not bouncing back you're not bouncing back from a uh, an adverse situation or, or something that's causing you anxiety or stress you're actually learning and growing through it and as you're learning and growing through it you can't go back to how you were you're actually a better more mature person because of it and if you've been through certain adverse situations chances are if you're faced with a similar situation you've got coping mechanisms you know what works you know what doesn't work so for me resilience is threefold firstly it's having a, a realistic optimism in a current situation to say hey life is what it is. I might not like the situation that I find myself in, but that's how it is. Um, then having this realization that life has some meaning and you give your life some kind of purpose. And that helps you in terms of focusing on where you want to go and how you want to get there. And then having the creativity and adaptability to work around all of the setbacks, all of the obstacles and all of the barriers that you're going to face, whether you can think about them or not, because they're going to happen. So just watch out for them. It's your mindset. I just remember what my mentor, Bob Proctor, would say. He would have this line on the wall and in the middle it was everything just is. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. And when you were talking I thought about when he would say that because you're saying just accept everything as it is. Life is this way. It's we don't want to put a negative on it or a positive. We just have to say this is how it is. How are we going to move forward and learn something from whatever we're in? Is that a good way to look at it? I, I would say that it is. A, it is a good way to look at it. Uh, there are certain things which you've got absolutely no control over whatsoever. A lot of it is around pandemic, the decisions that the government makes, the, the weather, um, there are certain things that you can control. You can control what you eat, what you do, and uh, what you watch on the television, what books you read, all of these sort of things. You can make certain choices around that. So recognize what you can choose to do and make the choices that make you feel pleasant and i'm stressing that because there's a lot of nonsense out there around positive and negative emotions and oh, cracky it really it, it i hang my head in shame when i hear that because emotions are emotions we experience them for a reason they're they're a kind of psychological physiological construct and what we've got to do is just to accept that we are feeling a certain way so what is the information that this emotion is telling us and it's not the emotion that's positive or negative it's our reaction to it and it's our behavior so uh, yeah, there are going to be some emotions that are not very pleasant. And there are going to be some emotions that are much more pleasant than others. So if we look at emotions as being pleasant or unpleasant, that's a much better way of looking at it than positive and negative. And also, we've got to bear in mind that some emotions are going to be destructive and some emotions are going to be constructive by the way in which you use them. 
So if uh, let me give you an example. Prior to coming on and speaking with you, Andrea, I was experiencing a, a, a set of unpleasant emotions, rightly so, because I had a degree of nervousness and anxiety because I was going to be interviewed by Andrea. And uh, I was going on to a podcast. So I needed to physiologically be in the right place. I needed the adrenaline surge to allow me to get into the right place to have a good interview. Now, without that, I'd have either been very, very complacent or the interview just wouldn't have worked. So I just recognize, oh, great, I'm feeling unpleasant. I'm getting ready for the interview. So I, a kind of pleasant, destructive emotion is when I'm actually enjoying hurting somebody else or getting a lot of joy from their discomfort or their untoward circumstance. And uh, we, we do get those situations from time to time. So unpleasant, destructive emotions, that leads to stress. And what we've got to do is just to say to ourselves, right, enough is enough. Now I need to go and do something about this. I need to go and um, at times go and seek clinical um, interventions because what's happening is, um, put it at a very, very basic, simplistic level, our brains are just not making the chemicals that they need in the concentration that they need in the right area. So a little bit of a, a, a kind of pharmaceutical kick just to get the brain to go on the right, um, to get into the right place again. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It's just accepting that that's what's needed. Because if you have uh, an ailment somewhere else in your body, what do you do? You take a medicine to resolve it, sort it out, and hopefully deal with the symptoms and it writes itself or get to the cause of the problem and write itself either pharmacologically or, or through some other kind of intervention. Now, what about um, for managing stress in the workplace? So especially these days, Robin, there's always, there's already so much turmoil that came along with the pandemic. And where where do you even start with that, with fixing a culture that just feels off? I don't think that as a, a particular individual working within an organization, you're going to impact and change the culture. I am um, the the culture has to come from the top, and the majority of leaders, very, very senior leaders within organizations set the tone, set the climate within the organization. And a lot of them are just not aware of the impact that they actually have within the organization. Uh, and some leaders um, rule with fear and rule with anger, and they want their people to be happy. Well, you're not setting the right climate for people to be happy and to perform well. So if you go along to somebody and say, I'm not particularly happy, uh, a lot of these kind of leaders will turn around and say, oh, you need to be more resilient. No, they do not understand that it's nothing to do with somebody being more resilient. They just need to hear and listen to what's being told to them. And they need to take it on the chin and say, okay, right, we need to look at this and try and make some changes. A lot of that's not going to happen because people at the 
higher echelons do not normally listen to the people in the lower echelons within an organization. I mean, that's just the nature of work, unfortunately. So um, I go back to each individual and say, right, this is your circumstance. This is the situation that you find yourself in. How are you going to work within it to enjoy the work that you're doing, to learn from it and grow? And where do you want to go in the future? And if somebody says to me, I want to carry on with this organization, I'm really comfortable here, I'm really happy, everything's going well, well, great, more of that. But if they say to me, right, I, I don't like it here, well, what are we going to do? What are you going to do about it? And how can I help you? What are we going to do about it? First thing, get your CV out, <laughs> get your resume, update it. When was the last time you looked at it? Some people say to me, oh, I've looked at it in five years. Well, what happens if this wonderful opportunity lands in your inbox this evening? Please send us your CV by return, your resume by return. What are you going to do? Where is that resume? Where's that curriculum vitae? You'll spend hours chewing it over and it'll never be right. Oh, it's so true. Every time there's an opportunity that I'm looking at, you've got to go dig it out. Where is it? It's on some floppy yeah. disk somewhere. So it, it's yeah, so and it will be. It'll be a floppy disk, won't it? Uh, mine's on my desktop. I'm not looking for a new role. I found it this morning when I was looking for another file, and the last update was July 2021. So I do need to go back and see if it's still relevant. Uh, we've had eight, 12 weeks since that point. What have I done in the last eight, 10 weeks that needs to go on there? Now, just imagine eight to 12 years, what it is that you're going to, how you're going to capture that and how you're going to put that on that document. That's the most important document that you will ever need. It is true. It is true. And how many of us have gone searching for it? So I like I like it's mine. Mine's on my desktop from last year. So I know where it is oh, and good. what I've done recently, because it, it is so important. And, you know, just thinking about leading others, because, you know, this is like I'm listening to conversations other people are having. And maybe there's some sort of setback within the organization. How does someone who's got to lead an organization that's had a setback move past that to having a comeback? What, what do you think is important for that leader to think about to get out of something that's gone wrong? Well, I, I think the, the, the best way to consider what's happening in these circumstances is to look at the emotional pathway that we all go through when faced with change. And it's quite a complex pathway. So I think the important thing is to understand where people are emotionally on this pathway uh, so that you can actually then help and support people as they're going through the pathway. And also recognize as a leader that you are going through the pathway yourself. Now, quite a few leaders might go through the pathway very, very quickly and look back at everybody else going through and struggling emotionally with the change in circumstances and think to themselves, oh, come on, uh, sort yourselves out, get over here as quickly as possible. Well, again, they can't because they've got to go through these emotional pathways, this emotional turmoil, to actually come to terms with the changes and make the changes internally to their own self and their psyche 
to their very essence so that they can actually make the changes that need to happen. And we've got to bear in mind that people are not bags of sugars or, or robots. They're, they've actually got emotions and they've got emotional lives outside of the organization, which are going to compound upon the way in which people are emotionally engaging in the workplace. So if you're going through an acrimonious divorce with your partner, and you've got teenage children who are struggling to communicate. I'm not going to go back to your story, Andrea, but, uh, you know, in these sort of circumstances, you, you, you've got people who are um, struggling with a whole host of other things. They may have financial worries. They may have health worries. They may have problems with their elderly parents. They may uh, have problems around organizing a, a vacation. You know, all of these things are happening. They may be moving house, they may be decorating, they may be changing their car, they've got their pets to consider. We don't know anything about all of these. So uh, getting and treating people the same way, if that's what you want, go and get yourself a team of robots. True, true. You you brought up a lot to think about that we've got to take each individual person's situation into hand or we don't know what's going on with each individual person in an organization no and, and look at our um, our conversation here we've built up a degree of rapport over the miles i know a tiny tiny little bit about you andrea you know a tiny tiny little bit about me but we're making assumptions about each other all the time we do that as human beings we like to compartmentalize people and stereotypically look at things and uh, look for patterns and we can use our intuition and uh, it helps us to engage but uh, you know i'm i'm making a load of assumptions about you but i don't know anything about you at all and um you know, to a certain extent, I don't like that, but I'm engaging with Andrea, the woman who I'm talking to at the moment, not an Andrea who I knew 10 years ago or an Andrea who I will know in 10 years time. And if we develop a relationship together, perhaps we will speak in 10 years time, but the relationship will, will grow and evolve with that. So I don't know anything about your, your family. I don't know anything about your circumstances. I don't know anything about your job or your career. Um, don't know how much you've got in your bank account. I don't need to know a lot of that, but um, uh, the, the important thing is you're more than just the person that you present at this particular moment in time, but that's all we've got to engage with. Well, that's so interesting that you bring that up because you mentioned that you know Dan Hill, the faces guy. Is that is that right? You mentioned that somewhere in our communication, reading the emotions off of people. And uh, Dan Hill's work is brilliant because it's looking at the seven basic human emotions and how they are expressed as micro expressions on the face. And if we can train ourselves to recognize and to see these micro expressions, then it gives us a little bit more information to explore with people. So if I'm seeing a fleeting micro expression of sadness when you talk about something, uh, I might uh, then make an assumption that something happened to cause that sadness when you're reliving that experience. So uh, is that something that I 
need to explore with you further from a coaching perspective or do I just recognize it and, and, and move on? And um, I think to answer your question, uh, what Dan does is um, work because he focuses in on it and he's highly trained at doing it. Now, a few years ago, I started to train myself to do it and I got a level of competence but you've got to stick at it and you really really got to practice 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 it's back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of creating a habit and I didn't and I've stopped doing it but that doesn't take anything away from Dan's work because I think he's got that level of capability that oh I wish I had yeah. Let, let, let me tell you the story about Dan. I think this is a, a really interesting story. Uh, Dan contacted me through LinkedIn and he said to me, look, I'm going to be doing a European tour. This was before the pandemic. Um, for some reason, he thought contacting me, I might be able to open up some opportunities for him to do some speaking. So I communicated back with him through LinkedIn and we communicated over email and I said to him do you know I think we are, I can I can get you a speaking opportunity because I sit on the Northwest Committee for the Association for Business Psychology and we're always looking for great speakers would you like that opportunity so Dan said yeah that would be brilliant now of course the pandemic then hit so Dan had to do it virtually and he came along and he did a phenomenal session for us that was really, really engaging and really interesting. And then he contacted me, oh, must be a, two or three weeks ago, saying I've got a new book out. So I went back to the association. And I said, oh, Dan's got a new book out. Yeah, we'll have Dan back. Aww. So th that's that's my association with, with Dan. And uh, we built up a good business relationship through that. Now, I'm desperate to meet him face to face but whether that will happen sooner or later I don't know I know I know everything that's happened with the pandemic and travel and but uh, that's that's a fun story to hear I wondered how you how you knew him and and made connections and the whole practice thing it's it's so true my mom was really good at doing that that skill back in the day she's the one that first started teaching me how to recognize um, whether someone was uh, a good person or not a good person just by looking at and reading their eyes, just like um, Dr. Medina talked about um, theory of mind. And so I started learning this back in the late 90s through her. And then when I saw Dan doing it to his extent with sports, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. And, and really, really good people have got this ability to detect lies and they go into the police force and into the customer's offices and look at um, helping and training them to detect lies in people who are talking to them, engaging with them. And some of these people have got the ability to be able to say work alongside the police and when uh somebody's doing a i don't know what you call it, i've forgotten uh, a, a press announcement because they their child has gone missing um 
if they are emotionally engaging in the most appropriate way, you will know that they're telling the truth. And if they are using their emotions uh, in the inappropriate way and through micro expressions, they'll just give themselves away. And uh, they also use it in terms of watching the politicians speak at election time and they can make predictions on who's going to win the election based upon what they're seeing. I just wish I had the time, the energy and the inclination to learn that, but I'm doing other things. <laughs> Oh, I know this, this work is so much fun when I get to speak to people that are doing things like that and putting these podcasts out are uh, so helpful for me just to see what's going on with other people and it, it's fascinating. And we talked a little bit about how these skills need to be practiced, but what are some ways that we can practice these skills? What do you think is important for us to all know? Uh, let me talk about my area of special uh, interest, which is emotional intelligence. And before I answer the question, let me define emotional intelligence for you. Emotional intelligence is being smart with your feelings in order to make better quality decisions and build up authentic relationships. That's it in a nutshell. So how can you be more smart with your feelings? Well, the first thing is really to look at your level of self-awareness. What, what is it that you're good at? What is it that makes you special? What is it that Andrea is good at that Robin can't do? What is it that Robin can do that Andrea can't do? Let's define that. And it doesn't take anything away from you or it doesn't detract from me at all. Um, but let's, let's define that and build upon it so that you can then grow and adapt better in the world. Then have a look at how you're emotionally engaging with the world. Let's see if we can identify some of those pleasant and unpleasant emotions and what impact they have on you. How do they affect your decision making and the relationships that you have developed? Um, we're looking at it very, very kind of simplistically because that's just the nature of the understanding that we're in at the moment. Um, now, some of the academic papers that I read around emotions, some of them say there's um, oh, about 3,000 emotions, and others say there's 27,000 emotions. Well, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but it's a big number. And uh, I think what we've just got to recognize these emotions become better at working with them. Uh, and then the other core component of that, you've already touched on that, is social skills. How can we develop and grow and be better at communicating and, and social skills? And how can we then empathize with people at a deep level? And how do we build up rapport so that we can maintain these relationships? And, and then finally, what motivates us to do that? How do we uh, build up that motivation? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and just to kind of bring the story of James back to the end here, I wanted to just kind of finish it off because there was something that happened when I went out running in the woods and then I came across this clearing in the woods and there was this film set in the middle of the woods and this big wooden sign saying Sherwood Forest. 
And here I was all by myself. It would have been so much nicer if I had someone to share that moment with. I got a chance to meet um, Jason Connery, who was Sean Connery's son, and got an autograph picture of him and, and got a chance to watch the, the scenes be shot. And then when I went back to the house, it just wasn't the same to say, oh, I ran into all these stars in the forest. Well, I, I think what we've got to do is just to recognize that we'll all have things in the past. We've all got skeletons in the closet that we can look back and uh, we, can make, we can be regretful that certain things didn't happen in the way in which they did happen. They happened. We can learn and live and grow from that and just be the person that you are because of that and just kind of look back and think James was really really helpful to you because that story still resonates with you all these years on and you can still learn from that story and if we're looking at regret let's have a look at the regret that James is probably feeling here he had an opportunity to get to know somebody at a very deep level, kind of thrown together. And he's probably berating himself. I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have said this. Oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful if we'd have shared some experiences together, whatever they may be. So um, I, it's, it's, two, it's a two-way street. It takes two to tango. All these kind of metaphors that uh, we we hear from time to time and i think that's the important thing in terms of relationships it does take both parties to want to engage at that deep level and i think um, looking forward we need to understand empathy at a deeper level because i think if we look to the next 20 30 40 years with the advance of artificial intelligence what is it that we as human beings can do that the robots can't? Well, the robots can do some wonderful tasks. They can do it in a very logical, analytical way. They can plan, but they just cannot engage with people at an empathetic level. They never will be able to do that. And the reason is they just do not have our brains. They do not have something that complex to allow them to adapt, to grow, and to empathize with other human beings. Robin, that is so true. I want to thank you so much for your time today. For people who want to learn more about you, your books, your courses, and your speaking topics, is the best place your website? Yes, by all means, eiforchange.com. Uh, robin at eiforchange.com if you want to send me an email. I'm more than happy to communicate with anybody and everybody. Look at the story I shared with Dan Hill. That email came out of the blue or that connection came out of the blue through LinkedIn. So who knows where these opportunities will take us in the future. So feel free. Wonderful. Great to meet you. Have a wonderful weekend, Robin. And you too. All the best, Andrea. Thank you. 
If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 